Welcome back. It's time for Customers Who Click, the e-commerce podcast for brands looking for their next growth opportunities. If you're interested in improving your conversion rates, average order values, and customer lifetime value, head over to customerswhoclick.com where you can find all our previous episodes and get in touch if you'd like to learn more. In today's episode, we're diving into a topic that's a bit of a double whammy. We've got Josh Hester in the virtual studio, and we're chatting about the power of owning the manufacturing side of a B2C business. Think about it. It's like being the puppeteer and the puppet, but in the best way possible. We're also going to unwrap the layers of running a B2B operation alongside it. Uh, It's like playing chess on two boards at the same time. Complex, but fascinating. If you're ready to dive into the nitty gritty of manufacturing and its dual impact on B2B and B2C, let's get this conversation started. Hi, Josh. Thanks for joining me today. Would you mind uh, just introduce yourself, give us a bit of your background and uh, how you've got to where you are today? Sure. My name is Josh Hester. I um, I am one of the co-founders of First Hand Supply. We are a cosmetics company that makes hairstyling products and hair care products made using clean ingredients and sustainable packaging. And been doing it about six years now. Actually, the end of this month will mark six years. Not of the origination of the business. We started it actually July of 27, sorry, January of 2017. And uh, but we quit our day jobs the end of October of 2017. So it'll be six years of full time, just jumping off the cliff and looking for the best. But yeah, it's, uh, it's been something that I've been, it's been quite the journey for sure. Um, and here we are. What got you into this space in particular? Was it related to what you were doing? No, so my, my background is in, I went to school for design. I'm actually an art school kid. I was working in digital marketing prior to, to firsthand. The, the background was really, n- none of it was cosmetics based. Uh, we were using products similar to the ones that we're making. Uh, my co-founder, uh, he actually came up with the first product as very much a scratch his own itch type product where he, well, I'll, I'll give a little bit of his background. He was working in coffee, was also a touring musician. And uh, while on tour, he started to realize that his forehead and his head, like his scalp in general, was experiencing a lot of discomfort, irritation, inflammation, breakouts, that sort of thing. And and it was enough of an issue, especially when you're a touring musician, like being on stage is a big part of the package, right? And so when you're on stage and you've got stuff going on, it's not a comfortable thing. So it was enough of a, of a problem for him to want to at least look into it. So the first thought was, let me just try a different products because it's probably the, the products that I'm using in my hair and the ingredients in those products that are causing these, these issues. And so he tried he tried a clean, organic hairstyling product and it didn't cause the inflammation that he was used to, but also didn't work, right? So he was like, well, how do I find a product that actually works that does to my hair what I want it to do, but also doesn't cause these issues? So he was working in coffee at the time for a coffee roasting facility. He was overseeing coming up with formulas to produce the different types of coffee. He had just or was in the process of coming up with a manufacturing procedure for a new cold brew formula that they came out with. And so he was very used to this whole like start, work in progress, finished products type methodology when yeah. he came to developing things. And so he just a- applied the same mindset towards this product and uh, came out with the first the first iteration really, again, just to solve his own problem. And from there, we just sort of said, there's there's something here. And we got enough interest from other people, friends, which sort of spread to non-friends and then to actually it spread to Southeast Asia of all places, which is, which is when we started to see a lot of sales happening and we quit our jobs from there. Yeah. Awesome. Sounds great. And, and how big's the product range now? How far has that been developed? We've got about seven products now, like main, like hero products. We've got a few other peripheral products, but about seven. So what do you think is the key to getting customers clicking? For us, getting customers to click has really always been about making a product that works really well. And typically, by the time that they've 
clicked for us. They've either heard about the brand or heard about the product. And there's been something that's drove them to the point of wanting to explore more. And, and so we found that a lot of relationships outside of simply just an advertising or just being present online, those things usually funnel them back into Jeff. So is it a lot of, do you think a lot of word of mouth reviews, social proof, that sort of thing? Does that work out well for you? Yeah, some, somewhat. I think the, our approach has been, and it hasn't been the strategy from, the, from day one, but it's really been the results of circumstance, one of them being COVID. But the approach that, that we found works really well is to create an omni-channel presence in which we exist in uh, wholesale locations, right? So they're discovering us in maybe where they get their hair cut or they get their hair done or in a retail shop or in a hotel. We've got a hotel program that we work with. And so we found that just having the brand present in a lot of the different places where customers spend their time and their money, typically we found success in funneling them back to making a repurchase on our website. So some of it could be word of mouth. A lot of it is hearing about it from, let's say, barber or from their hairstylist at a salon. And so it kind of creates this uh, this virtuous cycle, if you will. Yeah, well, I think it adds a bit of well, yeah, like trust and, and social proof to it, doesn't it? If, it does, yeah. If you trust, if the person you trust to cut your hair trusts this product, then if you feel like that's working for you, why wouldn't you buy it? Sure. I think. Did you mention B to B, the B two B side? Mm-hmm. Then I know you, you talked about like wholesale and all that, but you have a. Um, do, do you manufacture as well? We do for yeah. so for others, white label. That sort of thing. No, we've never got we've we've never really tried white labeling, but we've offered it before in the okay. past. From an economic standpoint, it's never quite worked for us. But also, a lot of the people that have there's certain industries that we could white label for, and it, it might work. Um, mm-hmm. But a lot of the white labeling requests we've got were for from competitors. So part of it's like I don't want to make your product as well as mine, and I don't know that you want me to make your product as well as my own. Um, and so, yeah, we we haven't yet done any white labeling okay but you, do you manufacture as well we do for other people for other people no again you don't produce anything else for anyone else okay no. cool so i guess on the the manufacturing side then you guys actually manufacture your product do, do you own the manufacturing setup we do yeah it went from just a basic we we're pouring these things by hand and a second floor small apartment to now we've got about a seven thousand square foot facility we've got automated fillers we've got bunch of equipment that just speeds the process up, makes it pretty low touch. I guess what took you down that route, right? Did you ever, have you ever really worked with like external suppliers? Like what, what took you down that route of deciding to own it sure. rather than just hiring a company to, to manufacture it to your requirements? Well, doing it yourself initially is a great way to get very quick product validation and product market fit. And so for us, it, it allowed us to, to change things and try new things rather quickly and to make make changes, whether it be to the formula on the fly or to the way in which we're finding success in, in, in the types of ways that we were producing stuff. One of the things that comes up, and this is kind of getting into the weeds, but technique in making cosmetics does change the way that a product works or, or acts or the not so much the application, but more so the actual like chemical makeup of the product. And so it gave us a lot of flexibility to really dial in exactly how we wanted the product. And from there, we, I mean, we had a played with the idea of outsourcing at one point, just because it is, I mean, it's a lot to scale the the infrastructure for manufacturing. It's uh, cost intensive, it's personnel intensive, you've got to train people, you're basically building the entire thing from the ground up. And, and so early on, we had toyed with the idea of outsourcing it. 
But when COVID hit, we actually, one of the things that, that helped save us, I think, is that because we controlled so much of the supply chain and most of our vendors were stateside here in the United States, domestic. So we weren't running into stuff being stuck in a shipping container somewhere in the Suez Canal or wherever it might be. We were able to keep making and selling products when a lot of our competitors were stocking out. And so we saw this is actually a bit of an advantage for us, a bit of a moat, if you will. So we, we actually took advantage of it. And I would highly recommend this for anyone look into your local uh, grants, um, the the local support for the industry that you're in. There's a lot of money and resources out there that we were completely unaware of um, that we were able to take advantage of. So we got a grant for, I mean, I think we get like $35,000 every year to spend on grant from the state. Okay. And so we were able to work with manufacturing consultants that came in and they helped us with layout. They helped us with processes, with understanding cogs. And I mean, they helped us you're building from scratch, but if you can build with other people that know what they're doing, it's a huge advantage. Yeah. If you can bring in an expert who understands this setup. Yeah. And I suppose your co-founder probably helped with that yeah, exactly. a bit, given his experience. Yep. And then obviously, if you can get the state to pay for it, <laughs> why wouldn't you? Well, it's actually you that, it's you that's paying for it. Uh, in the United States, or at least in Massachusetts, when you play, pay unemployment tax and a few other different taxes as a business... That actually goes into a pool that they uh, use for resources, for any resources that aren't going to, let's say, unemployment, right? Because you're paying into it. And then if I'm not, if I don't have people that are being unemployed by me, um, I actually get that back through these grants. So it's kind of a cool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And is that, I mean, is that, I know we're getting into the details of this, but is that like directly attributed to you or is it just like you get some money out of a pot because you have paid into it? I don't know exactly how it works. I do know that it, a lot of it is funneled from the taxes that we pay as a business. I just know that we get, I forget the exact amount, but it's about thirty to $35,000 per calendar year. And it's just like super quick grant writing. So I guess the whole point is that the, there's loads of resources out there. Yeah. I mean, I recently came across something in the UK that I should be able to take advantage of. And yeah, I mean, I think if you fit like, all the criteria and you're quite like extremely eligible i guess is how i put it you can get some like i think it's about sixty-seven thousand pounds a year wow yeah um in in these grants that are just basically whatever you need to support your business so that's quite interesting finding out about that although apparently it takes maybe six months to actually get it approved yeah. Uh, but yeah i mean it's some of these things that maybe you don't know about and uh, maybe a lot. It's not well advertised. It's not well talked about. But then you find out about it, and suddenly you think, "Well, hang on a minute. This could be a game changer." Sure, that could be exactly what we need to get this going. Yeah. Do, do you think a lot of businesses are missing out on that opportunity to to man like own that that manufacturing process? I th I mean, it's for everyone, and there there are there's definitely ways in which we. Uh, we could benefit from working with someone else, right? Like we have to essentially build out a part of the company that a lot of people don't have to think about, which is the manufacturing side. And so, I mean, I, I do recommend it for many reasons. I think that it forces you to think about the product that you're making and actually what, what is the problem that you're solving. A lot of I've seen a lot of people get into business because they have an, an idea about something that kind of terminates with them making money off of it. And so, a lot of times the idea kind of it kind of stays in this superficial area where they're not really trying to create a good deal of value from the products that they're making it's oh here's a white space in the market how can i actually leverage this 
And so there's less sort of focus or innovation going into the actual product side. Because what ends up happening is when you work with contract manufacturers, unless you're paying a good deal of money to have customized, let's say, formulas or pack, whatever it might be to be made for you, you're getting something that they probably use for other people. And we've seen this quite a bit specifically within cosmetics is that there's a lot of stuff out there that's really just the same. They're all a lot of there's like three big co-packers here in I want to say in California, although it might just be in the United States that do a lot of work for the cosmetics industry in the States. And so there's so many products where they just, they're slapping a different type of label or a different marketing campaign behind it. And when you look at it and you step back and say, how is this actually contributing to humanity? Like, what is this actually, what sort of value is this actually adding back? Is this building upon something that we can then build upon in generations to come? Or are we just making a lot of additional Me Too products that are really just in it for us to make some money? And so when somebody does go down the, the route of manufacturing something themselves, to me, it signals that they're actually wanting to think through this in a way that's bigger than just another marketing tool or another marketing campaign. And I think that if you do it well, or even if you don't do it well, I mean, we've learned so much about building business by having to face a lot of the problems that, that have come up in this process. And uh, it's invaluable in some ways. It's an education yeah. in and of itself. Well, I think the first time we spoke was when I was exploring getting some products produced mm -hmm. and I was looking down, do I get someone to custom make it? Do I white label? And and I spoke to someone else who's over here in the UK and he pointed out a couple of white label suppliers and said, this one's like fine. It's they're, they're good. And the other one, I think he said they, they're essentially like blacklisted by most brands now because the quality of their products is terrible yeah. and it, it is just the same stuff. Yeah. And I suppose that was a bit of the battle that was going on at the time for me. It was, do I get something produced that is for what I want and my brand and, and what I'm trying to achieve with this? Or do I go down the white label route where I can put the effort into getting customer feedback on the products and stuff, but how much of that can I actually implement Yeah, if I'm working with a white label provider who says, these are your options? Yeah. Yeah. And you can pay X dollars more if you want to change those options for sure. Yeah. But being able to pivot rather quickly is really helpful in this process. And again, I, I think that if we were to go down the Copac road, it would probably look something like having a development R&D team in-house that's then dictating what the formulas and, and even some of the, the procedures are for producing the stuff that someone else is working from. And uh, again, I just think that the ability to create something that adds value in a way that's more so than just another marketing campaign is I think in some ways we owe it to ourselves as humanity yeah. to, to be doing that. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a brand over here called Wild uh, Cosmetics mm -hmm. who primarily, well, they, they were doing deodorant um, and their whole thing was sustainability, yeah. right? So you buy a metal case for it and then they send you the refills in biodegradable or compostable little packets. They've now expanded into like body wash, shampoo and stuff. I'm pretty sure they produce their own products, mm -hmm. but also they do a lot of marketing campaigns. So they do a lot of licensed stuff. So they'll do lots of, It's. I think it's always the container itself. They do loads of campaigns where they license design for it, um, which must do quite well for them. But I think yeah, they not get away with it, but they benefit from the fact that they are producing their own products. The products are good. Everyone likes the products yeah. and they get to do a little boost with that marketing campaign, yeah. as opposed to someone who's maybe 
white labeling or, or producing some generic product and then only focusing on the licensing element of it. Yeah. I mean, one, one thing that you can do too is like even look at some of the giants in the industries. How much, how many people have simply gone about white labeling that have staying power within an industry? And again, if that's not the goal, then that's not maybe part of the conversation, right? Is to produce some sort of company that 30, 40 years later is still sort of at the cutting edge, the leading edge of their industry. There's one brand out of the UK, Heikels, Heckles, H-A-E-C-K-L-E-S, I believe. They, they I, have you heard of them? I'm not sure I know it. No. I, I think I've heard of it, but I don't, I wouldn't know the brand. Yeah. They're from a coastal town that I'm blanking on the name, but they actually started because the founder, really fascinating story, but he, he moved to the area and there was loads of kelp that was washing up on the shore and he started collecting it and making products from it as a way to clean up the beach. And I know it, it kind of sounds bizarre, verbalize it, but uh, he ended up coming up with some really interesting products that, that caught a, a lot of attention. And they've utilized that same sort of methodology of how can we produce stuff that is doing something, right? So like they're pulling stuff off of the sea, they're, they're cleaning up the, the beaches and then producing products from it. I mean, even as far as they, they'll have like a Christmas, you can drop off your Christmas tree and then they distill it down and make candles from the, from the, the little okay. petals of the evergreen tree. Like Stuff like that is amazing. And, and they're producing actual new products that, that have novel molecular structures that actually do something for you. I just love, I love that way of thinking through product development and, and kind of the, the holistic approach to how it's affecting everything around it. And I think with that sort of stuff, it's quite obvious which companies actually care about it. Sure. And which companies are just kind of slapping the sustainable sticker on, on, on their website. Yeah. We're seeing more and more brands who have like clothing brands who the cl clothing is made from recycled plastics or bamboo or something like that. But you just get the feeling from their website and their brand that they don't really care about that. They just know that's the in fashion thing now. Sure. And they're going to benefit by having that on, on their site. The other thing I wanted to mention was I was actually having a conversation about beer brands the other day. And so Brewdog is an example of a brand that they had a bit of a mission. Do you know Brewdog? It sounds familiar, but I'm, I can't quite place it. They're a, they're kind of a beer, a beer challenger brand based in Scotland, now expanding quite a lot. So they've got places in the States and various places dotted around. Obviously, the vast majority are in the UK still, but they came out and their marketing style was very aggressive, guerrilla marketing, attacking other brands. But they remember one one advert they did on the back of a newspaper. So it's a full page ad, and it was the rating scores from a, a beer rating website. It's literally like beerrating.com, something like that. And theirs was like nine nine point zero out of ten. And then they compared it to three kind of mainstream brands that are like ev everyone would recognize and know these brands. And they were all scoring ones, twos, threes really really low mm -hmm. and they were just kind of making the point that this is all generic stuff and actually that's kind of the, the topic that came up the other day we were talking about i think just what beers would you stock on tap and if you ran a pub and there are a few that came up and it was just why these are all the same yeah pretty much yeah if you taste tested these three beers for example you probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference sure. between them yeah they're just that kind of old school beer brands whereas you get a lot more these days who I suppose it's more the craft stuff, isn't it? Who try and put like a little bit of a mission behind it as well. And some taste. And taste. 
which is, I guess, ultimately the important thing is the product that matters. Yeah, yeah. Right, which I guess is what the point you made right at the start, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, p- part of it, I think, is, a, is there's a cultural element to it as well, where uh, sticking on, on beer, th- there's quite a few beers that I, I just don't care for, but they sell incredibly well because their market aren't people who care about those things, unfortunately, right? And I don't know if that's the result of good marketing on their part or, I mean, it's also like we, I feel like in the last 10 years or so, you've seen the rise of craft where things like third wave coffee, really good coffee and how they're developing flavor profiles. But still, I don't know if you have Dunkin' or Dunkin' Donuts over in the UK. It's a huge coffee brand. I don't know if we do. Yeah. We we might, there might be like a couple dotted around, but yeah, it's not a, I wouldn't say it's a big brand over here. I mean, just like any coffee place where they're dousing it in in dairy and sugar, where it tastes more like those things than coffee, they do incredibly well here because the sort of like majority palate just wants that taste they're not in it for the yeah. actual sort of like the the premium the quality the like the wine connoisseurs people that have like this these expectations on the product and to some degree that's a cultural thing like there's people that like they just want the the cheap light beer and part of it is i, I my hope is that with businesses sort of taking a step in the direction of caring about their product so much to where how they're developing it how they're talking about it how the product actually works, we can start to shift and see a shift in our culture when it comes to the different products that we use and surround ourselves with. And that's kind of getting back to firsthand. That's a big part of what we're doing is that it's more than just a product. Like we, we believe that life is worth living for more than just your hair and your appearance, but we want to create products that fit into lifestyles in a beautiful way. And so it's, it, it goes kind of above and beyond the use and the functionality of the product, but creating a, an ethos of, of beauty. And people that actually care enough about these things, whether it's with themselves or their surroundings. And it's maybe I, I could see pushback from plenty of people on that. But but for us, that's just a, when you're creating culture in that way, it's a really strong starting point. Well, I suppose come back to the, the original question of how do you get customers clicking? Like, what is it that gets people buying your products? Because if they want it to be clean, mm-hmm. they could pick up anything you're off the shelf really yeah um and sorry actually that was a point i wanted to make um earlier when we were talking about generic beer and stuff um you've obviously got um brands like uh dove right Mm -hmm. i would say probably quite generic stuff but it's been out there forever so there's that group of people who just say well dove is an established brand it must be a good product therefore i'll buy it yeah and then you get other people who are a bit more like me, to be honest, <laughs> a bit more, it's owned by a, a multi-billion dollar com- uh, company. Is it that good or is it generic stuff with good marketing? So I will move towards more kind of, for lack of a better term, craft yeah. stuff. Yeah. So I suppose, yeah. Uh, do you know what people, what sort of messaging people respond to? Like what, what works for you marketing wise? That's for us, it's, it's been a moving target just in terms of connecting digitally. I, w- I will say, I think that there there are certain brands that do it incredibly well, where they're a multi-billion dollar conglomeration or, or corporation that they've gotten there because the product is that good. And they've done things in such a way that represent represents not just the, the product, but also the desire behind the product in a, in a really captivating, desirable way. And, and they're able to grow and continue to scale on that. And so it's not always that big billion dollar companies are bad, um, but 
there's plenty of them that scale yep. because they they know how to leverage a good marketing campaign or or they, they know how to tap into sort of like the majority taste or whatever it might be. I think in terms of our marketing, we again going back to the the product. The, for us, the product has to be extremely good. Um, like you can have beautiful packaging, you can have great marketing campaigns, but if the product sucks, eventually uh, you're going to fall by the wayside. And so for us, the, the product functionality wise has got to be really good. And so yep. uh, specifically within the types of formula profiles that we're making, where we're using ingredients that they have to be, they have to be utilized in such a way that actually get them to do something really well, because this is where a lot of clean organic natural brands fall is that they slap the clean natural on it, hoping that's going to be the thing that gets them to sell, but the product just doesn't work that well. And so yep. we've, we've created products using those types of ingredients that it just makes for an, an amazing product application use functionality experience. So that's the first one. The second one for us goes, it does go back to what we were just talking about, where our, our products are, are designed and packaged in such a way that it's beautiful. We want products to fit into people's lifestyles in a way that, that you know, when you're considering the clothes you wear, the, the sneakers or the shoes that you put on, the types of the things that, that the car that you drive, a lot of these things aren't just people sitting down and, and rationalizing what types of products they want, but they're trying to communicate something about themselves, either to other people or to themselves. And so for us, the products that you use in your morning or your evening routine, in your bathroom, we, we want those things to consider how we value or how we should be valuing ourselves. And so that's been a big part is just designing products that are as beautiful as the products themselves are. And then for marketing, the it's really for us, it's trying to it's trying to communicate. We have this phrase, you matter, uh, today matters. And it, it goes back to we we break our company down into three sort of north stars or one north star, but sort of three tiers getting there. We have our purpose, our vision, and our mission. Our purpose is to communicate you matter to everybody. That's sort of like the, the the top of, if we're doing anything, it needs to terminate on that, that we're communicating value to, to people that are using our products. So we're just value to people in general, right? But specifically for those using our products that we're communicating to, we want to communicate you matter. And then the vision is we believe that when you care for yourself and others, you will flourish, right? And so we believe in a world in which people flourish through this sort of symbiotic act of caring for yourself and then the mission is to help people care for how they look, feel, and live for good. And this really describes the, the thing that we're doing every single day. And so for our marketing, what we're trying to accomplish is how do we communicate to people in a really beautiful, compelling way that they have value and that they should consider themselves in, in that way. And that using our products is an extension of that, is that we want to create this air of validation of affirmation. I mean, all the Asian words, but like, yeah. how do you communicate that in such a way that actually gets people to say, when I use these products, I feel the value that, that this product that is conveying to me. Yeah. It's hard. It's really hard because we're not using like, I mean, sex cells is like a big one, right? So yeah. if you can, and this is oftentimes how the cosmetic and the advertising industries work is that I want to communicate to you that there's something lacking about you, that there's something, some sort of gap in your life or in your mindset that only my product can help close. And so typically using something like like sex as a means of communicating that is a phenomenal way to trick people into thinking you're not enough 
you're not worth enough, but I have your solution. And if you want to look like this person with the perfect body or with this perfect person or whatever it might be, you have to use my product to get there. And nobody comes out and communicates it exactly like that, but that's kind of what they're saying under it's under the yeah that's that's the message in the ad yeah and so we're trying to in some ways not be the antithesis of that for the purpose of being the antithesis but more so to say that there's a lot more right like there people exist in such a way where like when you look in the mirror and you look back at yourself you know what makes you feel good like the the way that your hair is supposed to look or the way that your glasses frame your face or the clothes that you wear only you can decide that right and so so making products that actually support that and communicate that and help you to get to that place, that's what we're trying to communicate. Yeah. So like a big focus on like self-care, I suppose. Sure. Yeah. Just you're the you is what matters. Yeah. Don't need to worry about anything else. So here's a product that makes you feel good about you and not just something that does a job, but could be replaced by any other product. Sure. I mean, we view them as tools, right? So it's like, you know what you want to do in order to get you to look the way that you want to look that makes you feel good about yourself or confident, whatever it might be. We just want to provide the tools that we think are, are the best available to get you there. Absolutely. What else about the business? It's maybe about running a business that you think you can share? Any tips? Just Yeah, I guess just generally about what has got you, what do you think is the big thing that's got you to six years outside of the product itself? Sure. I feel like we sort of figured out those things at like year four. You have to love it. And I don't just mean the industry or the category that you're, you're in, but there has to be a sense of you are creating something that you just can't picture any other thing to be doing with your life. There's an insane amount of like when you're building something and there is no, let's say plan B, there there's just an insane amount of, it's taxing, let's say. Yeah. It's, it's one of the most difficult. I have three kids. I would say that paradoxically, having three kids is what has made me a better business owner. And I would never recommend, hey, if you want to be a good business owner, go have children. But it's having children is probably the one and only more difficult thing I've ever done in my life. And I say that with a huge, it's the most amazing thing I've ever done in my life. But it will shape you and work you into hopefully to a better version of yourself and able to make decisions under pressure and with lots of stress and and just dealing with things that are not easy to deal with. And so for for the business, I mean, yeah, it's to have staying power, you have to be in some ways a sucker for punishment. There's a lot of things that you'll face that are just really difficult. And so for me, it's having good routines in my life. It's forcing myself to do things that are uncomfortable. Having resistance in your life is actually a really good thing, right? This is what makes exercise what it is, right? You're putting your body into resistance. So having moments of meditation or different things to put your mind under resistance is has been really helpful for me. Yeah. You could pull all the adjectives as far as like risk taker or whatever it might be, but you've got to be you've got to be okay being under pressure. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, I, I'm doing it as well. Yeah, I'm, 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 I was probably know very well what I'm talking about. You've you've got to. Even when you're feeling a bit rubbish about things or you're struggling a bit, you've got to keep going. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's really important to, I guess, from my point of view, optimize. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Keep testing new things. Yeah. I mean, I'm constantly changing up like morning routines, evening routines, um, just during the day routines to make sure that I'm finding out when I work the best. Sure. Um, yeah. Because I try to do roughly a nine to five, but I also know that 
there are certain hours when I can't do certain tasks. Yeah. And I think, you know, I just guess just going on this a bit more, there's no like one size fits all advice out there for this. One that gets mentioned a lot is, I think it's, is it eat the frog? Where you, you do the hardest task first. Okay. So as soon as you start your day, the best thing to do is do the hardest thing on your list first and get that out of the way. Yeah. I find the exact opposite works for me. Mm. I like to build a bit of a momentum by completing a few easier tasks and then I can um, hit that one. I'm feeling good and I I think I do a lot better with it. Yeah. So yeah, I'm just going to test things out. Yeah. I've been doing this thing where I tried to, I used to start my day in email and like I would use that to sort of build out my day. And now I'm trying this thing where I build my day out either like early in the morning before jumping into anything or I'll do it the day before. And so I know that the first thing that I'm going to do is start my day by doing those things. And then I'll go to something like checking email or checking Slack. Because usually in my mind, I think I'm going to check email for 30 minutes, build out a to-do list and then dive into that. And then inevitably, there's something that always comes up that will pull me away for an hour and a half to three hours to fix or to do. That's important, but it's also like not the most important, right? But it's uh, what's the, is it the Eisenhower matrix where you have urgent, important and yeah. There's a lot of urgency, right? But it's probably not the most important thing. So I found that if I can sort of pull myself out of that by starting with things that I know need to get done, that are highly important for the, the moving forward of the business, it's, for me, it's worked pretty well. I'm starting to use it more and more now. I started off really well, and then it basically became a really expensive to-do list um, for maybe the last six months. But I'm using it for a few more things now. I, I absolutely love it. I think it's great, but I really like writing things down. Yeah, and I find it, I find having a written to-do list so much better. Yeah, and if I'm trying to take notes from a book that I'm reading, I find it so much better to put those notes in writing than it is to type them. Sure, or whatever. Yeah, uh, that works really well for me. Uh, but yeah, every day, most days, I would do it at the end of the day, and I will, I clear my to-do list, delete, erase the to-do list for today, yeah. and then create my new one for tomorrow. Otherwise, I'll do it at before nine o'clock the next day. Yeah. So that I've got that list in place. And then, yeah, it's get a couple of those ticked off, then check email, then check Slack. Yeah. Fortunately, we're doing a lot of work with the US at the moment. So I know that I don't need to do email and Slack early on because they're not going to see it for five hours anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So that that actually works quite well. Cool. Just before you finish up then, have you got a... Uh, either a marketing tool or, or a, a general business tool that you'd recommend? General business tool. We've been using a program called Notion now for actually okay. many years. We, we were, I would say, an early adopter of the program. And they've come a long way, not in that like they were bad and now they're good, but they just constantly, they have a culture of continual development of the product. And so the product is always getting better. And so I found our whole team uses it. We use it for project management, for documentation, for wikis, for all sorts of things. And, uh, and I love it. It's just, it's been a great place to kind of keep everything in one. So I would highly recommend it. Notion.so, I think is the website. <clears throat> Use my affiliate kit. I'm kidding. No, no affiliate kit. <laughs> no, that's, it's been a great resource and it's just constantly getting better. This is not a tool, but I would say great people. I, we've, I've just found that I have a, because I went to school for design and because of the nature of my brain of just problem solving, I find that I have a tendency to jump into doing a lot of certain things that I do add value to them. Let's say it's fixing something or the aesthetic of something, but it's also probably not the most important thing for me to be working on. And so I think bringing really great people 
in terms of accomplishing those specific things has been, it's been huge. Maybe it's obvious to other people, but just working with, we've been working with a lot of really great people, whether it's people that we've hired or contractors and just seeing the, their ability to do things that I would normally have jumped into to try to like figure out has been, has been great. Yeah. So bring, bring yeah. great people on the, on the team. Good people who you're comfortable delegating to. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And could do the work. Yeah. yeah. I know one guy who, it's probably advice that's popped up elsewhere as well. He says, put an hourly rate on your time. Sure. And if a task, if a task is not worth doing for that hourly rate, then you pass it on to someone else and you do something else. Yeah. Yeah. We actually had a CFO that he used to walk, specifically my, my, my co-founder, when we were building out manufacturing early on, because we're there, the tendency is for us to do the things. And it, finally, he was like, can you hire somebody for less than whatever his hourly rate was, right? If you were to like break down what we're paying ourselves. And it was like, oh, absolutely. We should yeah. not be doing or touching those things at, at how much we're paying ourselves. But uh, yeah, no, I completely agree with that. Awesome. If anyone wants to reach out and, and have a chat with you or find out more, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, you can shoot me an email, josh, J-O-S-H at firsthandsupply.com. Probably the best way. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much, Josh. Yeah. Great chatting with you. Big thanks to Josh there for shedding light on the perks of owning your manufacturing and a B2C business and the added adventure of juggling a B2B operation alongside it. It's like ham the cake and eating it too, with a lot more strategy and insight involved. If you want to delve deeper into this dual-sided business model with Josh, he's just a LinkedIn message away. We're always keen to hear your thoughts, answer your questions, or take note of guest requests. Reach out to will at customerswhoclick.com or on LinkedIn. And that is a wrap on Customers Who Click for now. Uh, we'll be back in February with an exciting new format. So until then, keep those customers clicking. Yeah.